Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. What might American decentralization look like? We'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. Get classes there. Purchase those classes. Helps keep this podcast free of charge and use that coupon code podcast. Get 25% off all day, every day, just by using the coupon code podcast at checkout. So great win-win for you. You keep the podcast free of charge and you get awesome content. You can also click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com or go to Spotify for podcasters. You can subscribe to the show there. Give Throw a few pennies my way. Click on the uh, shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Buy one of my books at amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. That also helps Keep the podcast free of charge. Uh, you can also click on a little heart button if you're watching on YouTube, the Super Thanks button. All those are great ways to support the show financially, but all you got to do is rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Share it around on social media. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review. Comment on YouTube for the algorithm. All those things help get more eyes and ears on the show. And send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. All right, well, what would American decentralization look like? And this is something that we often think about. We had a concrete example of it, of course, in 1861 when uh, the South, 1860 when South Carolina left the Union, and 1861 when the rest of the southern states that joined the Confederacy left the Union. They formed a, a government. They had a constitution, which in many ways was far superior to the U.S. Constitution. They had 80 years to look at what they thought were problems with the U.S. Constitution, and they corrected those in their own mind. And of course, everyone points to slavery, but there's a lot of innovation in that Confederate Constitution, which, which is frankly very interesting. Things like a, a president with a six-year term who's unelectable. Right? You, can't, you can't run again. You get six years and that's it. Imagine if we had that in the United States. You didn't have campaigning all the time. You didn't have everyone gearing up for, well, is the president going to run again? And of course, until the 22nd Amendment, the president could run over and over again. It was only because Washington decided to step down after two terms that people did it. Grant wanted to run for a third time. So we, we've had you know, this discussion about what should the presidency be? Is executive government good for America? They prohibited uh, federally funded internal improvements, for example. I mean, you couldn't have those. They had uh, a situation in the Confederate Constitution where every spending bill had to be an earmark. In other words, you had specific appropriations. So the Congress, when it spent money, couldn't just pass a big omnibus bill and say, here is 
X number of billion dollars for this thing and then everybody can figure out how to do it. No, no, no. If you were going to spend $100,000 on studying rat reproductive habits, it had to be outlined in the bill. The president had a line out of veto to cut that kind of pork barrel stuff and waste out. Well, we have these sort of now, it's called an executive order or uh, an executive signing statement. This is what the presidents are doing. And Congress tried to give the president a line item veto, but it takes a, a constitutional amendment to do that. They, they can't simply just give the president that power, but the Confederate Constitution had it. Uh, there were some language changes in the, con in the Confederate Constitution, which emphasized state powers. There were some things in that, in that document that were improvements on the U.S. Constitution. We don't talk about much about constitutionalism anymore and things we can do to change the United States government, things we can do to improve it. We just simply have adopted the, the British unwritten constitution model when it comes to American government. And that was an innovation that really began with the Republican-dominated government beginning in the 1860s. The Republicans didn't care much about the Constitution. They stopped really even worrying about it. In fact, they had some really fancy, crazy ideas that people did tell them were wrong, but it didn't matter because they started getting in the majority and they could do whatever they wanted. One of those is the funniest thing. When you have Republicans in the 1860s start saying things like, well, the Supremacy Clause makes sure that the Bill of Rights is applied to the states. And everyone said, wait a second here. No one's ever thought that. Not even in the founding generation. The people that wrote the document didn't think that. But now, you're going to, oh, well, clearly this is what it means. Well, clearly it's what it means because the dopes wanted it to be that way, right? So what we've gotten is a system where the Congress passes legislation. And this is where Nancy Pelosi stood up and said, well, of course it's constitutional because we passed it. Look, Congress just passes legislation. They let the courts sort it out. That's what they do in Great Britain. That's an unwritten constitutional model. They can just pass whatever they want, and the courts just decide, well, is this constitutional or not? It doesn't even have to be based on the Constitution anymore or anything. I mean, they can just come up with any reason why it's constitutional. In fact, in law schools, this is kind of what you do. You have to take these landmark Supreme Court decisions that are completely crazy, really, when you look at the Constitution and the language of the document and the original intent and try to figure out how it fits. And... I mean, this is what law students have to do because they're training them in the common law, British constitutional model system. And it's a joke. So if we actually had a secession, if we actually had a decentralization, if we actually had these things, what could we do? What, could, what would America look like in that way? How, how would this actually work? Well, people used to talk about these things they used to talk about them more than they do now. For example, Jefferson talked about this stuff. He thought that eventually you could have four or five confederacies on the North American continent. I mean, why have just one? Why can't you have four or five that have some type of tie to each other that are, he called the, the he would consider the future confederacies in the West, kind of the children of the East, and of course they would have common ties and kindred spirit. It would be the ball of liberty rolling across the globe. And of course, it would be here in North America too. And So why couldn't we have uh, several different confederations on the North American continent? What, what's, what's wrong with that? No one ever really thought, thinks about that. But there's nothing necessarily wrong with it. Now, you could even have a model 
where you still have the United States and you have a decentralized situation where you have regional governments. And these are things that people could, could actually work out. Why can't you have a southern regional government, a New England regional government, a western regional government, a, a California, Washington, Oregon regional government? And these regional governments have a lot more control over their own domestic concerns. And then you say you have, you know, a common defense. We all band together to protect North America from foreign interference. At least you would think they would do it. Uh, we know that with immigration, that's not necessarily the case. But you would have some type of situation where you could do that. And if these regional entities were powerful enough to check the other groups, well, then, of course, you could have a situation where no one section could run roughshod over the others, or two or three sections could run roughshod over the others. So, I mean, these there are ways to think about America outside of the model that we have now. You could have a California, I'm sorry, a Hawaii regional government, an Alaska regional government. They could just be independent, too. And then, of course, we have outright secession, and people are talking about these things now all over the United States. It's what I mentioned on Wednesday of this week. This is, you know, a big topic. And uh, for about 20 years, one organization called the Abbeville Institute has been talking about these issues. Federalism, secession, decentralization, nullification. 20 years. And uh, 20 years ago, when that organization started, you didn't have as many people talking about it. 30 years ago, you really had nobody talking about it. And the founder of the organization, Don Livingston, talks about a conference that he organized when he was a professor uh, at Emory. And uh, he said, you know, he organized this conference on secession and no one showed up. Now you have academics writing textbooks about secession, independence movements around the world, what these things mean, what they mean for America. So in 30 years... So much has changed because we're starting to talk about self-determination again and political decentralization and uh, looking at the size and power of states and what that actually means. What that actually means for uh, liberty, what it means for rights, what it means for all of these things that have become catchphrases in the Western world. And is political decentralization the answer? Or is it not the answer? Is keeping this the, the massive centralized state. But that does that protect rights and liberties better than political decentralization? You actually have people that argue that position. So these are big questions moving forward. And of course, when you throw in the political conflict in America and why Americans are so angry, this really is the key. I, I've been saying this for seven years. The reason this show is Think Locally, Act Locally is because that's how you alleviate political conflict in America. Now, as I talked about on Wednesday, the Washington Post actually backed into this. Well, I mean, the problem is that the left wants to control everybody. And if they can't do that, maybe they're thinking about leaving because they can't have their political Puritan world. I mean, this really is the issue. The left are psychopaths. They're political psychopaths. What they want to do is make sure that you operate your life exactly the way they want you to. And if you're not doing it, well, then you have to be coerced. It is the power of the state. Conservatives do the exact same thing, too. And that's why I say that, you know, there aren't the neocons, in many cases, the West Coast Straussians at times. All of these people that advocate any kind of centralized power, 
on these particular issues, the Christian nationalists. I mean, these people want everyone else to live like them. And if they don't, well, then they should be coerced into doing it. Now, in a massive centralized state, that becomes really hard to do. When you have so many discordant cultures and peoples and backgrounds, it's, I mean, it's, it's nearly impossible. But people think because we have the centralized apparatus there, this is what we have to do. We should have centralized power over 320 million people. What they don't realize is that there's a way out of that. And it's just to, you could have these things. You could have a Christian nationalist state, for example, in a state, if that's what the people of that state want. And your state could be more reflective of what you want in your political culture. If you're a leftist, you could have California be as far left as you want it to be. And you wouldn't have to worry about anybody from Podunk, Alabama telling you what to do. If you're a Kinetic Cutter, you could do the same exact thing. If you're in Vermont, you could wear your Birkenstocks and socks all day. And nobody would tell you that looks really ridiculously stupid. If you're in Alabama, you could have the best government you could have for the people of Alabama. Whatever that would be. Or Oklahoma. Or Texas. And you could solve all of this political conflict. All the energy. All the money. All the corruption. All the power that goes to Washington, D.C. This was Hume's ideal republic. If you could decentralize everything, all of that would go away. Why does all the money and power and corruption go to D.C.? Well, because they have, they have trillion dollar budgets. Well, that's a lot of corruption. It's Rome. And I've mentioned it on this show before. It's Rome. You know, the, the, the thing where people talk about Rome and think about Rome, you should. Because Rome is so important for understanding the fall of empires. They did exactly what the United States is doing now, and it didn't work out long term. It, I mean, Rome lasted for a long time. But as it started to crumble apart and fall apart, it wasn't going to last. And I, the United States is not going to be here, I think, in its current form a few hundred years from now. It just won't be. Something else is going to happen. Some, it's going to decentralize. Something's going to break it apart. And there are people that are willing, I mean, to, to chew on the bones. There's no doubt about that. But if you do it properly, you can still maintain the strength of that union, which is what you know people like George Washington talked about, and people like John, I'm sorry, Edmund Randolph talked about. People that in the founding generation understood the strength of the union. The union offered strength against foreign interference. You could still maintain that strength without having uh, the nanny state, without having a bunch of political Puritans telling you what to do, or having... If you're one of those political Puritans having, you know, these hayseeds from somewhere else tell you what to do, you could have that. Now, the Institute, again, Abbeville Institute does a good job publishing articles and lectures and other things on this. If you've never gone there, abbevilleinstitute.org. It is a site that, uh, it is a, a pro-Southern site. The, the, the mission of the Institute is explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. So they talk a lot about we, I'm actually involved in the organization, talk a lot about things in the South. It could be Southern literature. It could be, uh, you know, Southern culture. Uh, it could be Southern music. Or it could be Southern politics, secession, decentralization, Southern constitutionalism, Southern economics. We run uh, articles on Southern history. 
It could be about the war. It could be about the colonial period. It could be about all kinds of things. It's a really interesting organization. And if you do like the Southern tradition in any way, or you're at least interested in it. Maybe you're, you're just interested in the Southern tradition and what that means, what that could mean for America. For a long time, people thought about how the Southern tradition could offer a counterweight for some of the madness in America. Go to abbevilleinstitute.org and um, throw a donation their way. But I want to talk about an article that was published uh, yesterday as I'm recording this. The title is Armageddon or Separation. It's by Boyd Cathy. Now, Boyd Cathy has been around decentralization and other things for a long time. Uh, he's been involved in the paleoconservative movement for a long time in America. And um, he is a, a really good, solid writer on these issues. And so I want to read this piece, and actually it references Chronicles Magazine, which actually just produced an, order, an issue, I should say, an entire issue on this issue of separation or a secession. And you should, you should get Chronicles. Uh, the, the articles are interesting, and because of time, I, I don't want to go through all the articles. I mean, it would take me several podcasts to do it. But this is kind of an introduction to it, and that's why I want to focus on this one particular piece, because Boyd introduces you to the arguments and to the positions and what would have to happen, potentially. What would an independent America look like? What is it, What has to happen to get there? It has to start with education, number one. I mean, these are my... It has to start with education. People have to actually think about this. You have to have a commitment to self-determination. You have to have a commitment to the things that Americans used to have a commitment to in the antebellum period, which would be conventions. You have to have a commitment to popular will through conventions. That's something we've completely forgotten about. The state legislatures could call conventions and they could, they could speak for the people of the states themselves. And if the people of the states speak, well, that means something. It's how the Constitution was ratified. It's how the southern states left the Union. It's how South Carolina nullified the tariff and then nullified the force bill. It was done in convention. It's how New England at the Hartford Convention presented potential amendments to the Constitution that they thought would improve it because they thought the South was controlling the government too much. They did it in convention. In the antebellum period, you had a Philadelphia convention, or even before the Constitution, a Philadelphia convention. This was a convention. You had the Annapolis Convention. Conventions were the way. Now, we often associate conventions with political parties, but conventions were the way that people of the states could get together and think about things and pass resolutions that the legislatures could think about and then put into effect. But it's the voice of the people. You have to start thinking about conventions. I actually have a, a talk on this. If you go out to Abbeville Institute and you search me uh, on YouTube, there's a, there's a talk that I have on conventions. It was, uh, I gave that talk in Atlanta, uh, I think it was uh, 2016, actually, about seven years ago, six, seven years ago, 2016, 2017, uh, on conventions. So let me get into this piece by Boyd Cathy. He says, increasingly it's become evident that the American nation founded with such high hopes and aspirations in 1787, is expiring, dying a prolonged, painful, but also virulently infectious death. Now, 
He uses the term American nation there, and I'm not going to quibble with Boyd on this. Uh, but you could say that there really wasn't ever an American nation. I mean, people like Washington talked about it. Uh, people like John Marshall talked about it. Alexander Hamilton talked about it. They were nationalists. Washington, in fact, uh, at his, in his will, wanted to leave money for a national university for the simple reason that he believed there wasn't an American nation. If you could somehow have an educational institution that could create this, well, maybe America would be better off. I cover that in reading George Washington at McClanahan Academy. You can get that 25% off anytime. Just get that reading George Washington class, put in the coupon code podcast, get 25% off. It's a great deal. Anytime. But this idea of a nation, an American nation, was something that people did mention. But what we had in 1788, after the Constitution was written, and then 1789, after we have the government with George Washington, the first administration, what we had was a federal republic. We didn't have a nation. We had a federal republic. And we had that federal republic up until 1861. Then we had a shift moving to a national government. A national government with complete control over the constituent parts. With a veto, essentially, over the states. Now, some of this was done through the federal courts moving through time. Federal courts gave the general government a veto over state law, and that was the famous Supreme Court decision, Cohen's v. Virginia, which the next class at McClanahan Academy is going to cover some of this stuff. But that's when that really begins. It's the 1820s, and you start seeing the federal government take a role that was never intended to have. So, Uh, Boyd continues, those words are very difficult to write, especially for someone whose American ancestry goes back to Virginia in 1646, and whose ancestors helped settle our southern states, and who served honorably in both state and local elected offices, and who fought in every major war in which my state, North Carolina, and this country have been involved, including for the Confederacy in 61 to 65. He says, indeed, I think it quite conceivable that had the Confederacy been victorious in its efforts at peaceful separation in 1861, much of the later calamities and putrefaction which afflict this country might have been avoided. Now, again, you say that, oh my gosh, people are going to go nuts over that. What do you mean? You can't say that. All this terrible stuff, those people were terrible. This is the neocon position. This is the, you know, the West Coast Straussian position. They're going to they, they're bristle at all that. Oh, no, no, that would have destroyed the Union. The funniest thing, when people make the argument that somehow the Confederacy leaving, the Southern states leaving, destroyed the Union, it's so illogical that it shouldn't even be said. But this is how deluded these people are. If the Union was destroyed when the Confederacy left, when when you had an independent South, if the Union was destroyed, then how did you still have Abraham Lincoln as President of the United States? How did you still have a United States Congress? How about a U.S. Army? How about a U.S. Navy? How about trade with foreign powers? Diplomacy with foreign powers? How did all that work? How about all the states that still had governments and everything functioned? How about, I mean, you still had industry taking place and farming and everything else? You had all of these things, banking houses, financial institutions, all that continued to exist. So if the union was gone, if the union ceased to exist, which is what the argument, the union is destroyed, We have no more United States. You did. 
All four years it still existed. It's amazing to me that people actually still make this idiotic argument. It's ahistorical. But that's what all these people are. The South could have continued to exist independently, and the United States would have still existed. This is an argument that some Democrats in the North made. They were shocked. The Union's destroyed. Well, and why are we still here in Congress talking about this stuff? If the Union's destroyed, then we should all go home. Abraham Lincoln's no longer president. What do we have? I mean, we're clearly still here. So what is this thing? Anyways. Boyd says, admittedly, such a statement is counterfactual. I recall at the beginning of the Civil War centennial in 1960 that author uh, McKinley Cantor authorized a, authored, I'm sorry, authored a serialized work if the South had won the Civil War, chronicling a what-if history of America after a Southern victory in that war for Southern independence. Cantor's scenario first appeared in installments in Look Magazine and then in book form in 1961. And there have been others since then but it has been largely in the past decade that such alternative histories seem no longer in the realm of fantasy, but actual precursors of events that could very well occur here in the USA. I mean, what would happen if you know, we had these things? What would happen if, this, if the United States went through a decentralization? Would it be chaos? Would you have you know, this, type, this type of government lining with this government and that? I mean, what would actually go on? You have... You know, the fear mongers, all of those people would all be Russian assets. Russia would take over America. Russia, an inept government in many ways, would somehow take over America. It, it doesn't make any sense. Over the past five years, I've written seven, seven essays suggesting some, of the, some form of national separation of the American states, perhaps even within states, that might well be the p- most peaceful, least violent way to alleviate the increasingly unbridgeable, implacable, and vicious divisions tearing this nation apart. Just a cursory read of the establishment leftist press, the Atlantic, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Salon, should convince anyone of this. Anyone, that is, whose mind has not been thoroughly possessed by the demonic woke infection that can only be described as satanic. The great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky, 250 years ago, understood clairvoyantly both the foul and evil character of such poison, as well as the truly theological nature of such spiritual inversion. In a very real sense, he foresaw the coming, not just of the Russian Revolution, but also of the successive waves of what is essentially a continuing revolt against God and his creation. I mean, look, all you had to do is look at the French Revolution. The French Revolution unleashed all of this stuff. The French Revolution was the turning point, because every leftist lunatic that runs around today is is a byproduct of the French Revolution. Then he lists all of his essays, and um, if you go to abbeyofinstitute.org and you look at the article itself, you can read these. I'm going to skip over that. He says, Now in a major contribution to this much-needed discussion, Chronicles Magazine, the paramount journalistic voice for traditional conservatism in America, certainly in print form, offers a critical symposium in its October 2023 issue titled The Future of the American Union. Featured authors include Michael Rechtenwald, William Lind, and David Azarin. And most notably, Editor-in-Chief Paul Gottfried, whose detailed contribution, The Future of the American Resistance, frames the October issue. Now, full disclosure, I was asked to participate in this symposium, and I didn't have time to do it. Uh, And so, uh, it's a really great collection of essays. 
Interesting. Very interesting collection of essays. Uh, and so I think that you know this is something that um, you should, if you can't, if you aren't a subscriber to Chronicles, go out and do it. I think it's like 60 bucks a year. And, and you can, of course, have digital access to this right away. But this is something that you should really look at. Kathy says, I have written about Chronicles in the past, essentially praising its critical role in any future restoration or recreation of the old American Republic, perhaps better American Republics, plural. Like any national publication with a variety of writers, there will occasionally be a piece with which I disagree. But overwhelmingly, the magazine offers critical essays, reviews, and columns which should be required reading for anyone concerned by the leftist venom, which now seems destined to fully murder the framers' dream, imprison dissenters, destroy the nuclear family, pervert our children, and engage us in never-ending global war for unobtainable peace to establish some dystopian world reset, worse than anything George Orwell envisioned in his classic novel, 1984. Uh, yeah, Chronicles does a good job with this. So he says, what is our future? What would happen if indeed somehow Donald Trump would manage to get past all the voter manipulation and outright dishonesty and win the 2024 election? Would there not be extreme violence, even rebellion in blue states and in major cities? Would not states like California push harder for secession or separation? I think you would see that. I mean, I think those are questions that are true. Uh, Donald Trump is the great disruptor in many ways. I've said it on this podcast. Not only if he wins, but also if he loses. And it's the way he could lose. It's the way he would lose. And I'll tell you, the left is playing with fire. If they think they can go out and remove him from the ballot, that will be politically dangerous. Now, but Boyd Cathy doesn't mention that here. But that is the way they're trying to do it. And there's been several articles. But what if we just use the 14th Amendment? We say, well... He's ineligible. We'll just take him off the ballot. If you remove Trump from the ballot in all the blue states, what happens? What happens if Trump wins? If he wins enough of, if he wins all the red states and he gets 270 electoral college votes, there's a narrow, I mean, look, for, for the Republicans to win, they have to play a perfect game. They really do because the demographics and the voting trends are not in their favor for a national election like the presidency. There's not. So what would he do? What would what would happen if Trump is removed from the ballot in all these states and he still wins? Or if he's removed from the ballot and he loses in a very close election, maybe he could have won one of these states where he's not on the ballot. Now, of course, you can do writing campaigns and other things. But what would he do? And of course... He's not been convicted of anything, which is the legal question. I know that you've got, you know, the, and I've covered this on this podcast already, where you have these legal scholars saying he doesn't have to be convicted of anything. Lincoln didn't think that had to happen. I mean, this is where Lincoln is the most dangerous president in American history. But anyways, what would happen there? So Kathy says, or so, let's suppose that the hysterical left manipulators, the deep state, and their loathsome conservative GOP collaborators, manage once again to pervert election laws and voter totals and ensure the re-election of the brain-dead puppet Joe Biden. Would those who witnessed this remain idle and simply let it happen again? Paul Gottfried's essay, along with other contributors, while diagnosing the pressing problem, also provides a potential solution. Certainly it raises serious questions as well, but it should and really must be our point of departure as we sink deeper into the cesspool, the sloth of despond, from which there is no escape. Only spiritual slavery to the powers of darkness. 
Here are Professor Gottfried's final paragraphs, which bring this, his essay to a close and suggest what concern normal Americans should be considering. This is all now Paul Gottfried for the next three paragraphs. Gottfried says, The best solution, given the circumstances, is peaceful separation, a solution that can be under, undertaken in stages even if it cannot be achieved all at once. If Americans committed to opposing the tyrannical left can be in, induced to settle in common areas, and if they can control local and regional administrations, then their living situation should be far from hopeless. The regime's opponents will be in an optimal position to respond to unwelcome directives from the central state. They can simply avoid enforcing them. If this practice spreads to enough places, it will be hard for the administrative state to impose its unitary will without facing multiple challenges. So what he's talking about here essentially is nullification. But it's nullification in a way that's akin to what would happen, say, in the American War for Independence period, where they simply just ignored the edicts of the crown. They just didn't enforce it. Unenforceable. I mean, there's no uh, you know, large-scale convention saying, this is what we're going to do. We're going to nullify the bill. No, you just ignore it. You don't enforce it. It may also be necessary for the survival of enclaves of resistance that the decision of those who choose to live under the regime be treated as irreversi irreversible, providing the decision has been reached without pro probable conversion. It will be foolish for those who opt for freedom to share their hard-won autonomy with those who have opted for the opposite side, but who then decided to change their place of residence. Even more suicidal would be to extend full citizenship rights, rights to those who took this step. There is no guarantee that those would-be neighbors would not be carrying with them the views and values of the places they left. So here he's talking about you know people that would immigrate, right? So you have to keep these people out. When you create these enclaves, you have your own immigration laws to prevent people from these other states from moving in. This is we've talked about that on this podcast, a Yankee tax, things like that, right? So you have to somehow prevent this stuff. And how do you do it? I mean, you're, you're creating you know, geographical boundaries and political boundaries, and that's going to be a difficult process. It used to be that, you know, if you look at the Greek world, well, then you could just be uh, a, a non-citizen, right? You don't have any rights. You can live there, but you have no voting rights. You can't own property. You got to pay a fee. So let's say you're there, you're a citizen of Cal the Republic of California or whatever it is, and you go to Texas. Well, you can never be a citizen. You can live there, but you can never be a citizen. And you're going to have to pay a fee to be there. So you might want to do business there, whatever it is. But you can't, you'd have no recourse in the courts, none of that. It's going back to a really a Greek model of citizenship is what Paul Gottfried is advocating here. Where you didn't really have... Uh, there were Greeks, but there wasn't a common Greek nation. So he concludes by saying, one should not confuse these hypothetical asylum seekers with former communists who eventually fled communist rule. Most of these those refugees were staunch anti-communists by the time they defected. Blue state residents who decide to move into red states, by contrast, usually carry their leftist politics with them. There is no reason to think leftists will behave differently if they move into more conservative regions in the future. Very true. Regulating who settles in woke-free areas will be necessary to protect those outposts of freedom from infiltration. Therefore, any attempt by the central administration to tamper with the situation, probably by invoking the 14th Amendment, must be doggedly opposed. But you see if you actually have... The 14th Amendment really is the problem, right? I mean, it is. The 14th Amendment is everything. 
It's the 1868 political revolution in America. Not, not because that's actually what it was supposed to do, but it's because how the courts have decided it was going to be. Some really thought-provoking things here. Uh, what would America look like? What would you have to do to keep it a certain way? And uh, Again, these are things that the Institute has been working on for a long time. 20 years, 20 plus years, and now Chronicles Magazine is thinking about this, and you have other places too doing it, and the 10th Amendment Center, and um, you know, John Burt Society has really started getting you know, very, very interested in nullification and other things, so you have a lot going on, um, and it's really a nice discussion to be having. These are things that were not happening 30 years ago, but are happening now, and when the conversation starts, and education starts, and more people think about this stuff, you might actually see some action at some point, maybe not in the next couple of decades. I don't know. I don't know. I can't predict how this is going to work out. But people might actually start thinking about, well, what if we could curtail the power of the central authority simply by ignoring the central authority? I mean, this, could that work? Um, how, how do we do this? These are really interesting questions, both on the left and the right. And it's something that uh, more and more Americans are thinking about. All right. See you next time on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.